If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 22nd, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, as we continue our journey through Women's History Month, Steve talks to the director of the 2017 film Girls Lost. And in honor of Cesar Chavez Day, March 31st, we have two Gaytino reports with women who continue his legacy. But first, our own Abby Dees gets a mammogram. I'm way overdue for my mammogram. It's been about six years since I had one. And of course, the more time that goes by, the more I get nervous about getting a mammogram, afraid of what it might show. Does breast cancer run in your family at all? It doesn't. My um, mom had a cyst in her breast in the 60s, around the time that I was born. This tells you how much technology and the attitudes about this have changed, that a cyst is a completely normal thing. Lots and lots of women have cysts. It's important to have them checked out, but now they do these, you know, outpatient things to check them out if they're at all concerned about them. But my mom tells me the story of palpated assist. There might have been a mammogram. I don't know if they did them the way they do now. And um, so she went in for surgery to remove the cyst. And she signed a piece of paper saying that if they felt that that cyst was cancerous, that they could perform a mastectomy on the spot. So she signed the paper. She went in for surgery. She said she didn't know if she was going to wake up with her breast or not. And she woke up and, you know, one, two, there were two. And it was just a cyst. It was a benign cyst. And we all have benign cysts. So I know that is so not the way they do it now. Now there's so many ways to investigate a cyst. And so many friends of mine have had cysts and lumps that had a question mark on the test. And it's no big deal. Yeah, I'm 42, so I'm due, and I haven't had one yet, so I'm kind of excited to see this experience with you to kind of know what I'm in for, to see it first before I actually have to do it. Wow, I didn't know that. I just assumed you'd had them before. Oh, yeah. It's easy. I think it's a non-event. There's always a little bit of nervousness when you get a test for something, because then you're committed to finding out what the answer is, and I'd rather know now. And if there is something that comes up, you really do want to know. Because I know so many survivors of breast cancer. I know so many people who have caught it early. And because they've caught it early, it really, the word cancer has got so much associated with it. But I know that there's so many ways to approach that. The waiting room with, I don't know, 
a dozen people, a dozen people waiting to go in, every single kind of woman. I've been given a little shorty gown that's like a sh wraparound shirt. <laughs> and I can leave everything else on, but I have to take my top off and my bra off and put my little short pink gown on. There's patients who come in just for a screening mammogram, which is what you're having today. And basically what is done, you have two views of each breast, and then the tech will take you in, have two views of each breast, and then you leave. There's no results given right away because it's a screening mammogram, mm -hmm. okay? You leave, you'll get a report within a few days, you'll get a letter stating your results. If there's anything um, that the doctor sees that they question, we'll call you back for more views. Mm -hmm. So usually what we do is give you a phone call and make an appointment for you to come back. Um, my doctor told me that he said, now don't be surprised, they're probably going to call me back because I have dense breasts. And he said that this was a question of, that California law now says if the technician finds that there's dense breast tissue that they would just do this as a matter of course. It doesn't necessarily mean anything is wrong, but it's a follow-up. It's true to an extent, but we've always done that. Yeah. I mean, it's always been the case where women who have dense breasts, mm -hmm. it's harder to visualize something inside the breast because of all of the white matter. Mm -hmm. Patients with, quote, fatty, mm -hmm. unquote, breasts, Sorry. not cystic, oh, not just fatty. Uh -huh. Fatty breasts are great breasts to do mammograms on uh. because they show up as black. Uh -huh. And then when there's something growing, which is white, it's mm -hmm. very obvious. Okay. When you have dense breasts, you have naturally all this white tissue interspersed mm -hmm. because it's dense. Mm -hmm. So those are the types of breasts that it's more difficult to diagnose a cancer. You were here last with us in 2007. Have you had a mammogram no. in between that time? Okay. No. And are you having any problems today no. with your breasts? Wonderful. And any family history of breast or ovarian cancer? No family history of breast cancer, cystic breasts, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. And have you had any surgeries on your breasts no. ever? Okay. Have you ever had a breast screening ultrasound where they just did an ultrasound screening for no problems? They just kind of went over your breasts? No. Okay. No. Great. If you have any questions for me, what I'm going to do right now, same as before, we're going to take four to six pictures. Okay. The doctor will read the films later, and if they do need you back for anything, we will call you back. It. it just looks like kind of a big printer or something. It's, it's, yeah. it's just a sort of little table surface, and presumably the top comes down, and with my breast in the middle of this it. This is called a bucky. This is mm -hmm. where the detector and all that is. So you lay your breast and, on that. And then the x-rays come out from up here, mm -hmm. and go to the detector, and your breast is right here, and this is the paddle we use to compress your breast. Looks simple enough. Yes, yeah, very important to compress the breast because Basically, you want to compress the tissue out as much as possible mm -hmm. to avoid superimposition that you may get called back for. Mm -hmm. okay. What do you do with a woman who's fairly small-breasted? Um, we use a smaller paddle, and mm -hmm. we do a lot of pulling and pushing. <laughs> but we can do it. But it really can be done. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if they're super, super small, it's a little more challenging. But you get it. But we get it. Yeah. Um, my mother-in-law never gets a mammogram because she's worried about radiation. Radiation is very low dose. Mm -hmm. um, you get, when you take a chest x-ray, this is probably an eighth of a chest x-ray. Really? Pretty close to that, mm -hmm. yeah. You can go ahead now and stand right here and okay. open up your gown, my dear. All right. I'm going to start with your left breast. I am putting yeah. my breast against this machine. I want you to turn your feet facing the machine and turn your head towards me so you're looking this way. Perfect. What I'm going to do is going to feel a little high, but don't worry about that. Angela, feel free to comment on the things you see. What I'm doing now, I'm pulling you in just to get as much breast tissue on there as I can. Okay. okay? So far, so I'm good. I'm going to go real slow. Don't worry. We're going to compress your breast. 
I'm basically leaning against this machine, and she's just sort of moving the table and the little plastic piece on top of it, kind of to create a, well, a boob sandwich. <laughs> a little bit more. Okay, you all right? Yeah, it's not yet boob panini. Almost there. We're almost there. We're good. Okay. Well, it's the first exposure. I just want you to hold your breath right where you're at. Don't move. Okay, so you can go ahead and step back now. You might want to lift up. There you go. Give me just a few seconds. How long have you been doing this? Oh, my goodness. 20, over 20 years. So you've seen technology change quite oh, a bit. Amazingly. Yes, it has changed quite a bit. And it's changing for the better. Good. Yeah, we're Good. doing digital now, where before they used to do film screen, the last four years we've been in digital. And it's clearer, you can see through dense tissue better. Mm-hmm. And um, the images, you don't need any film, you don't need to develop anymore. Mm-hmm. It goes straight to the computer, straight That's to the doctor. I tell you, they look perky yeah, in <laughs> x-ray version. Yeah, it's just sort of swirly and gray. Yeah. I mean, it's what it's supposed to yeah, look like. Yeah, these are the vessels. Uh-huh. And this is your, your breast tissue. All yeah. this air, it's all fatty. I gotta say, I've seen pictures in the past, and this mm-hmm. is really clear. Yeah. That's really yeah. obvious. Yeah. Really nice. So you've seen a bazillion breasts. Yes. Is there a such thing as a typical breast? Not really. No. Everybody's different. Yeah. Yeah. No. Everybody's mm-hmm. different. There, we have um, dense, mixed, fatty, mm-hmm. all kinds. Yeah. Tiny. 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 Big. You're, you're a little worried, Angela. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now turn your feet back over to the, and look at me this way. Good. Leaning against this machine again. Yep. Do you feel uncomfortable having somebody else touch your breast? Not really. I might go real slow. I think that makes some people nervous. I think it does too, but, you know, she's touching me respectfully and obviously for the purpose of getting a good picture, and it doesn't... This is way easier than getting a gynecological exam or a pap smear. Okay, we'll shoot the next one. You can go ahead and stop breathing right there. Just hold your breath. It's almost like looking at this screen like Abby is a cartoon figure and we get to see a variety of angles of your breast and how it gets kind of smushed. There's the basic two views, the cranial caudal from Mm -hmm. above and then we do a side view to get all the Mm -hmm. breast tissue on. So the next two are going to be side views. Okay, so it's a vertical panini. I got to tell you, this it's not uncomfortable. It's more just it's a little awkward because you're kind of yeah. leaning against this machine. You know, you don't usually go breast first in most things. Right. Now, I want you to take off the left side of your gown all the way off. Okay. This is the view where we're going to get under the arm and the rest of the outer part of the breast tissue. Mm-hmm. Maybe I spoke too soon. And this one of us might be a little more uncomfortable, but okay. not too bad because we're getting more anatomy in there. Okay. So what I want you to do now is just kind of bend slightly forward. Wonderful under there. Mm-hmm. Bend your elbow and kind of relax your arm. Don't hold on too tight. Okay. What happens is everybody has a different um, threshold and yeah. also their breasts compress differently. You can breathe. Some people you can compress all the way and your breasts will allow it. Yeah. Others you just go to a certain point and, and it's it. and yeah and you want to compress so the breast is nice and taut. That means mm-hmm. the breast tissue spread out as far as it's gonna go. Yeah. We know that we've got all the breast on there by getting all the muscle. This is your pec muscle. Oh, yeah, I see that. Pec muscle has to go down to the nipple line, and this is the inframammary fold because mm-hmm. you still have breast tissue down here, so that's what mm-hmm. you want to try to get. You're not going to be able to get this on everybody, but you, this is what you go Which for. is basically the stuff underneath the breast. Because it goes underneath yeah. a little further. Breathe, and you're all finished. Oh, that was easy. You did really good. Thank so how, do, how long do you think the overall procedure normally takes? The overall procedure should take about 10 minutes. And the mammogram itself, 
It's not that big a deal. You know, I'd rather go out for coffee and donuts. But it was quick, it was easy, they don't have to take any blood. <laughs> and I feel sort of stupid that I was avoiding this. Girls Lost is a 2015 award-winning Swedish film directed by Alexandra Therese Kining, still streaming online. Steve Pride offered this report. I'm Alexandra Therese Kining, screenwriter and director of Girls Lost. Which is in Swedish? Pojkarna. What's the movie about? It's a magical fairy tale about sexual awakening, but also self-discovery among three teenage girls. Is it hard to talk about the movie? Because there's so many things you have to be careful not to reveal. It is. But I can reveal that there are girls, and <laughs> they're teenage <laughs> girls. <laughs> but that's about it. It's based on a well-known book. Yeah. Tell me about that. How did you decide to do this? I was approached by the producer who saw my uh, previous film, Kiss Me. And uh, he sent me the novel, and I loved it from the first time I just started to read it because it's so poetic and it's magical and got loads of realism in it. So the contrast between the magical realism and the fairy tale feeling of it offered a challenge that I really, really liked and fascinated me. What was the hardest part about adapting it to the screen? Finding the main characters, and especially Kim, who's the main when I came on board, I think the producers envisioned girls playing both male and female, and I wanted it to be both male and female actors. So we have to give away at least something here that there are, how would you say it, doppelgangers Yeah. in the film, male and female. Male and female. And the transition between the two cinematically was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. How did you do that? Was Do you have like a million dollars in special effects, or was this something you really thought out? Oh, yeah, there was a lot of planning and thinking to, because that transition when uh, Kim turns into a boy, it's never been done in a moving frame, only in a fixed frame. So technically, that was really difficult. So there was a lot of planning going into that, and the kids playing the parts that they were just real pros. Talk a little bit about gender fluidity, because that's a very central plot point. Yeah, it is. At the time when I was working on the screenplay, I was reading Judith Butler, she has a very interesting queer theory where sex and gender is not something that we are. It's something that we become, which means that we go back and forth between genders depending on how society views us and the kind of rules or whatever is created around us. So to me, I mean, that's fascinating, and I wanted really to explore that. And that was a tiny part of the novel, and I just really wanted to empower that. Wherever you fall on the LGBT spectra, there's something for you in this film or in this story that anyone can relate to or identify with. Which is very timely right now, I think. Yeah, it is. What do you want the audience to take away from this? I think I just want the audience to reflect and to think about being in a situation like that. We've been touring this film on festivals now for almost a year, and there's always a lot of gatherings afterwards, and people come up to me and talk about their experiences, and it feels like it's an important movie for so many people. What did they say to you? What jumps out? What do you remember most? There was a woman telling me, an older woman, that... This is the first film that she saw that actually, in a very accurate way, displayed how it is to feel transgender. She never saw anything like that before that so accurately just put the feeling and the tone of of how it is to be trapped inside your own body. This has been a conversation with writer-director Alexandra Therese Koenig.
Girls Lost is a Wolf video release. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. You can stream Girl Lost on the Tubi app. Don't go far, because we'll be right back after this quick break. The Woman Behind the Camera, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. Photojournalist Frances Benjamin Johnston was certainly daring, not just because of her subject matter, but because she entered the field of photography when it was like a club for men only. As a young woman in the late 1800s, she got her hands on one of George Eastman's newfangled lightweight cameras, and by the turn of the century had her own studio in Washington, D.C., taking portraits of famous people like Susan B. Anthony and Booker T. Washington. Her own self-portrait showed her as a new woman, skirts hiked to the knee, holding a cigarette in one hand and a beer stein in the other. In another, she posed in front of a bicycle dressed as a man with a false mustache. Mind you, these were Victorian times, but then again, flouting social conventions was her stick. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Robbie Kaplan, the author of Then Comes Marriage, United States v. Windsor and the Defeat of Doma. And you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Because it's Cesar Chavez Day on March 31st, and we're still exploring Women's History Month, what is more appropriate than a Gaytino report with Dolores Huerta? who with Cesar Chavez was a co-founder of the National Farm Workers Association, which later became the United Farm Workers. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero. Or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my very special guest, an American hero, my personal hero, a woman on a lifelong journey as a community organizer and social justice activist. Dolores Huerta has been an iconic civil rights leader for more than 50 years and still going strong. Most know she co-founded with Cesar Chavez the United Farm Workers Union. Some may not know Dolores has long been a champion for the LGBTQ community, a community that supported Dolores and Cesar in the earliest and most dangerous days of the UFW. Welcome, Dolores. Thank you so much for being on the Gaytino Report. Oh, I love it. Did we ever think we'd see a day when we have a radio show called the Gaytino? <laughs> well, I'm sure that uh, on this station it's uh, definitely uh, possible. It is possible. I'm very happy to be doing this show and to be putting the spotlight on the Latino LGBTQ community. Now, we've been friends for a long time, I'm very proud to say, and we've talked about many, many things, but it was only recently that we started to talk about the LGBTQ issue in our community, and that came about because of that story Luis Valdez told me about the People's Bar. Do you remember the People's Bar? Oh, of course. The LGBT community was very much supportive of you and Cesar back when you first were starting the UFW. And in those most dangerous days, they would march right alongside you. We actually had a special button designed 
for our support LGBT community, and it was the Farm Worker Eagle with the Pink Triangle. And uh, actually, when we were on the boycott in 1968, many of our staff members were involved in the big marches that they had in the Stonewall marches back there in New York City. And uh, then over the years, uh, we always participated in the marches, gay pride marches here in West Hollywood and also in San Francisco. And it was wonderful because it would be great to see all the farm workers coming down with their flags. And, and I remember one farm worker saying to me in Spanish, Ay, señora Huerta, esta gente nos quiere mucho. In English, he said, Huerta, he said, these people really love us. And I said, yes, they do, and they're very supportive of us. And so the farm workers just marched with so much pride in the gay pride march. So it was just wonderful to see that. But getting back to the People's Bar, I was so amazed by that story. According to Luis, it was a bar owned by a lesbian woman, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe Mocha. Mm -hmm. And uh, after the marches and rallies and all that, the campesinos and you and Cesar would all go back and there'd be the gay community there hanging out at a lesbian bar. I think that's a movie scene. Well, it's more than that. Uh, Mocha was actually uh, Cesar's and Helen Chavez Cesar's wife, uh, their comadre, because she baptized Caesar's oldest son, Fernando Chavez. And we had actually many of the strikers, we had a large component of uh, gays that were part of the farm worker movement. Uh, many of them worked at the De Giorgio Ranch, which is one of the big companies that we were striking at that time. In fact, they were the object of one of our big boycotts that we had. I know with the immigration issue, so I don't even know what to say, Mm -hmm. such a hot-button issue. Mm -hmm. And for LGBT undocumented Mm -hmm. men and women, that's an additional challenge. I mean, it's a whole other ballgame for them when they're undocumented. Yeah, and it's really bad because we have many of our LGBT community who have their partners or the people that they have married Uh, who are undocumented, and they have a kind of a really, really big problem in terms of being able to fix their papers so that they can come over and join their spouses. So it is a very, very big issue, a very painful one. Painful, yes, that's the right word. And also uh, in terms of health, because if they're undocumented, they're afraid to go get tested for AIDS, and it's a domino effect in so many areas for the undocumented gay man or woman? Well, I think in terms of testing, uh, like we participate in that. One of my son-in-law's, Camilla's husband, he has, uh, uh, you know, been... Uh, but what we have done when we do the testing is we actually take it out to the street. This oh. is what we do in Kern County. We just don't wait for people to come to us. And we have a very active program there every single year to talk about the testing and do a lot of publicity around it. Your foundation? Yes. And we partner with other organizations to make this happen. But we don't wait for people to come to us. We go out there and look for them. Can we talk about Juanita? Yes, we can. Uh Well, I love Juanita. She's a pistol, that lady. Oh, she she? sure is. (laughs) Your daughter, Juanita Chavez. Mm -hmm. Did she come out to you early, or how did that all come about? I think after she graduated from San Francisco State College, then she let everybody know that she had a partner. So she lived with her partner for a few years. Uh, her partner eventually transitioned and became a man. Mm-hmm. She's very active, and she calls herself an out and proud member of the LGBTQ community. She was a teacher for a good many right. years, mm-hmm. and she co-founded the first gay-straight alliance at Mission High School, where she went. Was that in Bakersfield? Where no, was that was it? in San Francisco, right there in the oh, Mission. On the she, Mission District. Yeah, she lived in San Francisco when she graduated from San Francisco State. Her first teaching job was at Mission High School. And she did more than that. Uh, she also created a clinic there, and provided counseling services for the LGBT youth that were there 
at Mission High School. She's currently the communications and media coordinator for the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Yes. Um, this is Dan Guerrero with the Gaitino Report, and I'm talking to my very special guest, Dolores Huerta. It's like you're going to go on forever doing this. It's such a marvel to see and how you embrace so many of these, I don't know, I hate to call them causes, but I don't know what else to call well, them, and, and how they intersect each other. Right. Well, it's a human rights agenda, you know. Yes. It's, it's about human rights. Yes, that's it's, the basic, that's what, the bottom what it's line. All about. And I was very fortunate, you know, I knew Harvey Milk. We campaigned for him when he ran for the Board of Supervisors. He was a very good friend of Caesar's and a good friend of Richard Chavez, Juanita's dad. So it's always been a very, very strong connection. People sometimes ask me, where did this evolve from? I said, well, I don't know. It's always been there. I can't ever remember a time when I remember going to Mexico when I was a teenager. I was 17 years old. And it was really interesting there because there were some gay waiters in this restaurant. And my stepfather was from Mexico City. And he said in Spanish, estos son los Luisitos. He said, those are, they call them Luis. And I said, what is that? What is that? He said, these are gay men. And he said, everybody has to protect them to make sure they're not harmed. And I thought, oh, that's such a beautiful sentiment. My stepfather was born in Mexico City, grew up in Mexico City. He was kind of from the middle class. And it's interesting, and then we saw how that changed later on. I really don't know the history there. I guess somebody from Mexico could say that. It may have been when, and I don't know when Fox became president or wherever, when they kind of reconnected with the Catholic Church again. So I don't know, but something happened there from the time I was 17. And of course, later on, we saw a lot of discrimination in Mexico. But it's interesting, too, that the Oaxacans, you know, they have a very different take on gender. There's a third gender. And the third gender are people that are very sacred, actually. And uh, they have a wonderful celebration here in Los Angeles. I think it's called Los Mochis. And uh, people dress up like uh, in the Tijuana, which is uh, as part of the Tijuanas, uh, these beautiful, beautiful costumes where they have the huge lace bonnets and these beautiful embroidered uh, costumes with these huge embroidered skirts. And uh, they have a beautiful celebration uh, here in Los Angeles. And they uh, every year they elect a queen. And it is a person from the third gender that is the queen. It's a beautiful celebration. I wasn't able to go this last year, uh, but the year before last, and you had the uh, Mexican consulate was there, and all of the local city officials were there. I think that there's a movie about this, and maybe we can have some of the folks that organize this beautiful yes, event. Yes, I would love. I, I never knew event. about this. Yeah, well, it, well, in Oaxaca, it happens every year. But now in Los Angeles, they've been doing it for a few years. Well, it sounds like the Native Americans here in what is now the United States, because they also revered, they were called two spirits. Right. And they revered exactly. them, and it was like they were special, exactly. you know, because they understood the two uh-huh. worlds. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, in Mexico City, going back a little bit, and now, of course, uh, gay marriage has been legal there for a good many years, and their gay pride... It's no longer the F, it's now Ciudad de Mexico, right? It's huge. They have a huge gay pride uh, celebration there. So it has evolved there, which is fascinating to me, you know. We're getting some external noises because we are at the Catalina Bar and Grill, where Dolores Huerta has just been honored by KPFK, and for good reason. You've spoken very highly of KPFK, how it was the only voice in the early days of the movement, 
Yes, absolutely. And this is uh, such an incredible, incredible radio station. And what I love is when we think of the many years now that this has been celebrated, this organization. I remember when it was first started because I am, as you know, 87 years old now. So I was just lucky to be alive when so many of these great things were just beginning, uh, like the uh, radio station and uh, knew some of the first pioneers that started the radio station. I was very lucky to know some of them. And uh, to know this, it's still here. And, and you people, are too. And Yes, I'm <laughs> lucky to be here, and the, but the people are still supporting KPFK and KPFA. You know who personifies the whole issue of undocumented people who are of the LGBT community is Jose Antonio Vargas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people know about him. He was born in the Philippines, mm -hmm. and he, it wasn't until he was about 16 that he found out he was undocumented, mm -hmm. and he's a gay man. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess he's got a book coming out, but he personifies that whole issue. Yeah, and Jose has been, as you know, very active all over the United States. He travels a lot, and... Uh, he has an organization called Define America, and his uh, organization tends to try to educate people on issues of the gay and lesbian transgender community, but also very, very active just in terms of the dreamers. Have you worked together? Have you? Yes, met? we have. Yeah, Jose, uh, we have been working together. But in fact, this last year, he was very active on helping us out with the film also, the film Dolores, that was produced by Carlos Santana. Your documentary. Yes, yeah, the documentary. Your documentary was fantastic. The film, Rosario Dawson playing you, I don't think so. But the documentary, I've seen it twice. It's incredible. How did you feel about it? I was really happy that uh, they found so much footage that I had never seen. And they touched on the issues, of course, of sexism, discrimination against women, the farm workers being victorious over Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, and Ronald Reagan. I want to just say a word about Ronald Reagan. Maybe some of our listeners are going to say, well, Ronald Reagan brought us amnesty. Uh-uh, that didn't happen. He signed the law. The ones who did the work on that amnesty bill was up Ted Kennedy, Schumer, who is now in the Senate. He was in the head of the Judiciary Committee, Howard Berman here in California, Peter Rodino. They were the, the main people. And myself, I'm going to include myself, because uh, one of the things that we're trying to do now is make, as women get credit for the work that we do, right? And I worked on the amnesty bill for months in Washington, D.C. to make sure that it passed. You know? And so just remember, Reagan is not all that great. But uh, the film, I think, is really great because it also touches on the issues of police brutality. It touches on ethnic studies, which we know in Arizona. And you and I were marching there in Arizona when they were doing all of that discrimination against the undocumented people and also uh, taking ethnic studies out of the schools, out of the high schools. Uh, as you may know, the state Supreme Court has now ruled uh, that they have to teach ethnic studies. So they lost that law that they passed. I did love that film so much, but I loved hearing from your children. Well, they're not children anymore, mm -hmm. but they're still your children, your babies, mm -hmm. right? It mm -hmm. was uh, Juanita spoke, and I think Ricky, mm -hmm. and uh, it humanized you because mm -hmm. everyone knows you as the iconic figure that you are, mm -hmm. but you're a lady with family, and mm -hmm. it was beautiful to see that side. Mm -hmm. And Camila, who's the executive director of my foundation, she's the one that does all the work while I'm running around the country, following the film around and doing speaking engagements. <laughs> your energy just I remember one time we were at some event, and then I called you the next morning to, I don't know what, and you said, oh, I'm in Cleveland, and I'm going to speak in a minute. I'm thinking, Cleveland? We were in L.A. at 11 o'clock last <laughs> night, and you were, I don't know how you do it. I honestly don't. <laughs> well, we try to cover as much as we can because we want to get the message out there about the dreamers. We want to get the message out about we want people to be sure 
and vote and go out and knock on doors and phone bank and get themselves elected. We're urging people, yes, run for the school board, run for the city council. Uh, we've got to get progressive people to take over the power. And of course, uh, as we're talking about the issues of LGBT community, these are some of the things that we have to really work hard on, okay, so we can end the homophobia in our community and in our society. And I think we're on the way there. We're not there yet, but uh, we know we have to get everybody involved. I mean, it's important to celebrate how far we've come, because we have. Yes. We have. And yet, the road ahead is very long and very treacherous. Mm -hmm. And we are currently in a back step, as mm -hmm. we all know. So, you know, when that first terrible election night, my knee-jerk reaction was, I'm going to lay low, let this thing blows over. I better not do Gaytino anymore, you know. And then when I came out of this shock a couple of days later, I thought, no, 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 no. This is a time not to retreat, but to really stand up and be louder than ever. And we all have to do that. We all have to do what you've been doing forever. You are literally a national treasure, and I treasure our friendship, and I thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me, Dan, and I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing because uh, you are also a long-distance runner and uh, carrying on the justice work uh, that your dad started uh, through his music and uh, you through your art. And thank you very much for uh, producing the play Gaytino that I have seen twice and love it. And uh, urge everybody, if you haven't seen it, please, now it's time. And I understand that you're working on some other great projects. Thank you. <laughs> this is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I've been talking with a true American hero, Dolores Huerta. Until next time, ten orgullo, be proud. We'll be right back with another Gaytino Report with Dolores Huerta's pansexual activist daughter, after this quick break. The captured images of Francis Benjamin Johnston coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. After a distinguished career as a photojournalist, Francis Benjamin Johnston bequeathed over 20,000 photographs to the Library of Congress in 1952. She's best known for photographing the rich and famous, but her work speaks of an inquisitive eye, resulting in artful images of coal miners and iron workers, female nudes, world fairs, and even historic architecture. Early in her career with lighting trickery of her own, she also captured breathtaking photographs of Mammoth Cave. As official White House photographer for five presidents, Johnston snapped the last photo of President McKinley at the 1901 Pan American Exposition just minutes before he was assassinated. While Johnston never married, letters indicate her romantic attachment to another woman, Maddie Edwards Hewitt, with whom she lived and worked for six years. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Jerry Jewell, cousin Jerry from Facts of Life and Jewell from Deadwood. And you are listening to I Am All You Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to I Am Are You Radio. As promised, here's another Gay Tina report. This one spotlights Dolores Huerta's pansexual activist daughter. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report, voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. 
and welcome to my guest, Juanita Chavez. She is, as with many of my guests, an activist, dating back to forever. A young student fighting for increased funding for education and ethnic studies. A teacher co-founding the Gay Straight Alliance at Mission High School in the Bay Area. And before it all, a child marching picket lines for the United Farm Workers Union. Today, Juanita serves as the communications and media coordinator for the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Welcome, social activist Juanita. <laughs> Thank that's you. Official? Yes. Got to be in your DNA, right? Your dad who I met many times, sweet man, Richard Chavez, your uncle, Cesar Chavez, your mom, Dolores Huerta. So basically, you went into the family business. I have gone into the family business. You call yourself a movement child. You were in the picket lines with your brothers and sisters as soon as you could walk. Yes, we didn't really have a choice back then. We were kind of drafted into it, soldiers of the social justice, nonviolent army of the United Farm Workers, but it definitely shaped me and shaped my worldview and gave me a sense of purpose on this planet. And even when I wasn't directly involved with working with my mother's foundation, I've always been at every teacher's rally and I was previously a public school teacher and I was the chapter chair for the union at the elementary schools that I taught at in Los Angeles. And so I've remained involved. Oh, I know that. But I want to stay for a minute on your being that child. How old were you really? And what was the experience like specifically? How did people treat you? You were kids. Oh, my earliest memories are of being in the United Farm Workers. We went to New York for the great boycott. Of course, I was very young, so I have fuzzy memories of that time in my life, but I attended a preschool called the Children's Underground in New York City. So it was all progressive activist people involved in various movements at the time that helped shape who I was. I remember playing in the boycott house in New York City. I remember marching my preschool age friends around to different stores in the neighborhood and asking them to take the grapes out and to not sell gallo wine. These are my earliest memories. I remember vividly doing pickets in front of stores and passing out leaflets. And, and for me, it was not a struggle. For me, it was great times. We were surrounded by wonderful, supportive people from all different religions, ethnicities. It just seemed like my early, early childhood, I was just exposed to so many different people, and they were all supportive and excited about the work that my family was doing. My family did not enjoy, uh, I guess my uncle Cesar Chavez, to some extent, did enjoy the celebrity. He was beginning to be well-recognized, not so much my mother, and definitely not my father. So I didn't have that sense of your family was special. I just thought that this is what all families did. It wasn't really until I came to start public school in Kern County, in Tehachapi, where I realized that my family was different. And there, of course, the environment was not so welcoming, and we were actually looked down upon, discriminated against. Now Tehachapi is more diverse, but at the time, I could count all the children of color who were at our school on two hands. It was a very small school district, and the work that my family was doing was not necessarily welcome or supported by the general population. We were looked down on because we were poor. Everyone who worked for the United Farm Workers at the time took a vow of poverty, so the wages were $5 a week. Of course, we were provided food and shelter, but not really anything beyond that. So our clothes were tattered, hand-me-downs, high waters. 
So, you know, we got a lot of uh, flack for that, being children, and then we were brown, so we also got discriminated against for being Mexican, which was odd to me because I didn't even know how to speak Spanish at the time, so I didn't understand why I was discriminated against for being Mexican, but mostly for the philosophies of my family. So I had not just children repeating what their parents were saying, but actually teachers calling me out in front of my classmates saying, your uncle Caesar." Chavez, the communist, you know, you live up there at the communist hippie ranch in La Paz. So just not really knowing what my family was doing, yet feeling obligated to vocally ostracize me in front of my classmates. Your brother Ricky has said many times that, yes, you were sharing your parents with the world because, you know, your mom wasn't home baking cookies. She had her agenda to do, and she took care of all of you. Of course, 11 children. You're one of 11 of Dolores' children. And your brother Ricky says that, yes, you had to share both your parents with the world, but your parents were also sharing the world with you. But the other side of the coin was what you just describe in school? How did you balance the two? Or did you? It was challenging. Once we started school, we couldn't travel as much with my parents. We had to stay behind. So there were long stretches where we felt the absence. And we really, like many people, love my mother and think she's really cool and fun to hang out with. So we really wanted to be around her. And we wish she could have been around more. And those times were challenging. She took us with her whenever she could. I remember one time she kept me out of school one day so that I could go travel with her to a protest in San Francisco. And she said sometimes the education that you get in the outside world is more important than the education that you're getting in the classroom. So we were always fortunate to have those kinds of experiences. I was able to go with her to a meeting in Governor Brown's office as a child. I don't think I realized at that time how important that was. I just thought it was another meeting. But now that I'm grown, I realized, wow, I got to actually hold counsel with the governor of California as a child with my mother. That is kind of special. But it was challenging. And I'm guessing it was challenging for your mom, too. I mean, you said you wanted to be with your mom. I'm sure she wanted to be with her children as well. But you have a mission, and I need to tell you what that's like. Your mom was a teacher. A lot of people don't know that. And you were an inner-city school teacher, both in San Francisco and L.A. Was that a natural transition for you from the earlier days in terms of working with young people and having a message you felt you could serve in that capacity as well? I always enjoyed working with children whenever we had summer jobs at La Paz or after-school jobs. Uh, growing up at the United Farmworkers headquarters in La Paz, I always tried to get a job in the daycare. We called it casa. I always enjoyed working with children, and my real motivation for becoming a teacher was I wanted to write. And I thought, well, it's perfect, perfect schedule. You go from 8.30, you're done at 2.30, and you have the rest of the time to write. I did not realize that <laughs> teaching is more than a 40-hour-a-week job. So that's actually what my motivation was to originally get into teaching. But I did enjoy working with students and enjoyed working with families and enjoyed motivating students and teaching them about their culture and bringing in ethnic studies when I could. The challenge was just working within the district uh, regulations and a lot of bureaucracy that happens in our public school system that I think makes it difficult for teachers to teach. We have policymakers up on high who are passing down policies that don't really align with the reality of what's going on inside the classroom and don't make our jobs as teachers easier, in fact, make it more difficult, and often go against what we instinctually know to be best practices for teaching and for children learning, and yet we're 
forced to do things that feel quite opposite to what is intuitive to children learning and loving knowledge. And both San Francisco and L.A. were inner-city schools, so I would take a wild guess they were mostly children of color. Yes, I would say that in Los Angeles, for sure, probably 90% of my students were from immigrant families. That was also challenging because I was dealing with a lot of social issues as well, poverty. Many of my students had experienced violence or crime. At a really early age, there was a trauma some of my students had from actually crossing the border and just dealing with a lot of the issues that our immigrant families deal with, except for being a child and having to have this heavy weight upon you. So it did make learning difficult for them and challenging for me as a teacher to not have the social services support that all of us should have for our children and our students in the classroom. And because of your personal experience, I would imagine you would have been able to really connect with them and they would connect with you because you knew what you were talking about when you were discussing some of those challenges that they have, extra challenging economically and uh, um, issues like that. Yeah. Well, so they would trust you, I would guess, more. Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt that I had a good connection with my students and cared for them. Unfortunately, I worked sometimes with teachers who were not familiar with our communities and not familiar with the immigrant experience in any way and drove in from other neighborhoods and would actually refer to the students as these children and these parents. And I just kind of got the feeling that they didn't live in the neighborhood. They didn't know what it was like to be these children and have these parent struggles. So that was heartbreaking at times. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytina Report, and I'm talking to social justice activist Juanita Chavez. Your activism has also very much been in the LGBTQ community, and when you were teaching, you co-founded the Gay Straight Alliance, which is still going strong, right? This was the Mission High School? I would say it is going strong because when we founded it, it was not going strong. My coworker Susan Bashovin and I knew that we should start a gay straight alliance, that there should be one at the school, but it was a very lonely club. We pretty much sat in the library at lunch every Tuesday, promoted that we were going to be there. Maybe it was more than one day a week, but no one throughout the whole time that I was there ever came and visited us at the table and took our literature. But the wonderful thing was that people knew that we were there. They knew that we were allies. So we started having students who weren't even our own students coming to us after school, during break times, and, you know, I, I need to talk to you. I'm having an issue. So we were a support for the students, just being faculty advisors who said we are here for the LGBTQ students on our campus, even if they weren't ready at the time to be public about that and join together as a public group. We provided lots of support, just more quietly. And so I think that it took a while to catch on. Now it is one of the most popular and active clubs on campus, has gay and straight students being very active and involved. So I'm glad we started it, even though it didn't really take off while I was there. And part of it, I'm glad that we founded it. Planted the seeds. Planted the seeds. So that leads us into sexuality. You started exploring your sexuality quite early, but it was an interesting uh, way it kind of got kicked off somewhat. And, and when you found one of your mom's books that really flung that window wide open for you, you know what book I'm talking about? My mother is an avid reader and has more books than anything she owns. She has a huge library and because we had a lot of unsupervised time, we had a lot of access, <laughs> unsupervised access to the books in the library. 
probably should not have been reading Nancy Friday's My Secret Garden at eight years old, but I did. I knew how to read, so I grabbed it and I found some very interesting material in there. And one of the things that I came across was, just to give some context, it's a book about women's sexual fantasies. I think it was like popular in the 70s or the 80s. And I read something in there about two women kissing. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but just the idea that two women could be kissing was very exciting to me. I don't think I'd ever heard of that before or, or knew that was possible. So... I wanted to uh, share this great news with my mother. So, you know, I was like, Mom, Mom, you know, in this book that you have, two girls are kissing each other. And she was just startled (laughs) and looked at the book I had in my hand and snatched it out of my hand and said, you should not be reading that. That's not for you. That's not for children. And I don't think she likes me to say this and doesn't recollect it in the same way that I do. So I'll give that disclaimer. She doesn't agree that she said this, but she said... That's not something that we do. That's like what white people do. That's weird stuff. So I got the message at eight. Okay, some women do kiss each other, but they're only white women. And so probably I should not be investigating that or or going down that road because I'm not white. (laughs) She probably grabbed it the first thing she could think of that would why it would not be for you or... I mean, that was her response to me. She didn't say gay is bad, gay is against God. I didn't get that rhetoric. It was kind of because she had been supportive, was supportive at the time of gay rights. But I just think... Being supportive of a struggle and a people's movement is different from having your own daughter maybe show signs or try to, I mean, maybe she didn't even recognize that as like my way of saying, hey, I think kissing girls is an interesting idea. Let's talk about it. It was different times then. So I'm sure her response was just like, oh my God, she's gotten her hands on this book that has all types of you know sexual uh, content in it. So it was probably more of a surprise like that. I think so. Because your mom has always been supportive. I was honored that she did this very program at one point. You identify as bisexual. Tell us about that day in D.C. when you finally said to yourself, after many years of exploring within your mind, within yourself, when you finally said, this is who I am. It took me a long time to come to that. I knew that my family supported gay rights, but I did not have a lot of messages within my family that led me to believe that I would be supported as a gay person within my family. So I really fought it, really was in denial with my own self for many, many years. You know, was uh, very close with a woman throughout my high school years, you know, close beyond friendship and, and was very much in love with her. But I couldn't admit that to her. I couldn't admit that to myself because I really just didn't want to be gay. And I thought, well, if I like men, then how much easier would my life be? Let me just stick with that. (laughs) So I really tried to push down any feelings that I had, any attraction for women, and was sure that this thing that happened with my best friend was just a fluke. And we had just gotten too close and something crossed the line and got blurry, but this would never happen with any other woman. Well, lo and behold, you know, I start college, I I get a job at a movie theater, and I have a crush on another woman. And I'm starting to say, okay, maybe this isn't a fluke. Maybe this is just who I am. So I had to go across the country all the way to Washington, D.C. I was an intern at the Feminist Majority, and we participated in this big, our group went down to a march on the mall. And I can't remember if it was specifically for gay rights or for the AIDS quilt, or it, it seemed... It seemed like the place, I I think, where I was finally like, I am amongst my people, and I don't feel shame, and I can be who I am, and I can admit to people who I am. 
without fear. And even though I do have fear, it's okay because I'm going to be supported. But the society at large is telling me that this is okay and that this is something that you should also, if you're a part of this marginalized community, you should be fighting for the rights of this community. And so it was at that moment. And I wasn't even in a relationship with a woman. I just wanted to say who I was and I wanted to claim it. So I came out at that time to my mother as bisexual. Since then, you know, the, the young kids have all expanded the definitions. And oh. I think what I truly am is, is pansexual because my love, my attraction is in no way identified by the gender binary. My first partner was actually someone transitioning from female to male. At that point, I said, well, obviously, I'm not just into men and women. I'm into men, women, everything in between. So the term is pansexual. Juanita, thank you so much for slipping down from Bakersfield. And you're slipping right back. You're just like your mother. You can't sit anywhere for more than 10 minutes, right? Yes. It's my pleasure to be here. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytina Report. And I've been talking with social justice activist Juanita Chavez. And a few gracias to my dad, Lalo Guerrero, who wrote and sings our opening theme, Los Chucos Suaves. My producer, Steve Pride, thank you so much. The Gaitino Report is recorded at KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder... We're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close out the show with a friend of IMRU and another powerful woman. Miss Amber Flame. Change is gonna come, uh uh-huh. Change is gonna come one day. One of these days and it won't be long. Change is gonna come one day. Change is gonna come, uh uh-huh. Change is gonna come one day. One of these days and it won't be long. Change is gonna come one day. Mild heart done had enough. Loving you's been way too tough. Knew all along that you didn't care. Ain't no need for me to be here. It ain't no use. Oh, yeah. Taking this abuse. Oh, yeah. You never choose. Oh, yeah. Gotta get you loose. Oh, yeah. Change's gonna come, uh-huh. Change's gonna come one day. One of these days and it won't be long Change is gonna come one day Change is gonna come, uh-huh Change is gonna come one day One of these days and it won't be long Change is gonna come one day Said you love me but that's a lie Don't know why I even tried Always said you'd see me through Guess that didn't mean much to you It's been so long Oh yeah, should have been gone. Oh yeah, 